Hey everybody, welcome to the Video Craft Show presented by Video Husky. I am your host, John Santiago, and in this episode, I am chatting with Doug Cunnington. Now, Doug is an internet marketer, project management professional, and content creator, and he's the founder of The Niche Site Project. It's a go-to source for anyone aspiring to start an online business through affiliate marketing. Through his website, podcast, and YouTube channel, Doug educates people on how to build systems for creating content that generates generates traffic, and an audience. In this episode, Doug and I talk about a host of topics, including how he creates YouTube videos by repurposing content he's made for other platforms, how live streaming differs from creating edited videos, and why it's important to him to drive his YouTube viewers to his email list. You don't want to miss out on this. Tune into the show. We're getting started here on the Video Craft Show presented by Video Husky. All right, Doug, thank you so much for joining me on the show, man. This is a real pleasure. We were just chatting here a little bit before we be- began about how I came across your your content in the first place. And it's exciting for me when I do these podcasts because it's a chance for me to meet people whose content I admire. So again, thank you for coming on, man. Yeah, much appreciated. I, I love the invite, love talking shop and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm pumped to be here and get into all the gory details. And for people who you know are wondering, I had come across Dan, I mean, uh, Doug's, <laughs> thinking of Dan from Tropical MBA, who I'm about to mention right here, but Doug's work on the Tropical MBA podcast, I'm not sure if anybody tuned in here um, knows about it, but it's a podcast about digital entrepreneurism and, and whatnot. And, and Doug was, Doug was a voicemail on one of the mailbag episodes. And Dan Andrews, one of the hosts of the show had, had mentioned that Doug had this really cool podcast and, and was ironically within this niche of niche sites. And so me having a background in, in SEO, I'm like, let me check this out and <laughs> try to learn more about what he what his kind of philosophy is behind um, creating content and SEO. Yeah, and it was um, a good example of trying to put yourself out there. So at the end of the TMBA, Dan and Ian often say, hey, we love voicemails. We love emails, like send them in. And if you put a little thought into it, you may get featured and then get an invite to another show and get the word out. So I'll take the compliment from from Dan for sure. I, I really appreciate him saying that. And, you know, I guess I'm a huge fan of the TMBA and that was sort of our, our common ground and how you found me. So yeah, pretty cool that that was the connection. Yeah, I, ironically too, Doug, like this job that I have <laughs> wouldn't have been possible without TMBA actually because I found it through their um, their job portal, right? So Justin, the founder of the company, um, he's he's part of um, like the mastermind group at uh, whatchamacallit? Dynamite Circle, Dynamite probably, Circle. right? That's it. That's what it was like escaping. Me right too. There. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. You might have, you maybe have uh, crossed paths with Justin or something on forums or something, whatnot. 
I am a, I'm a sort of a newer member just a few months in, although I've listened to TMBA for many years. And I'm not a big forum person or so I know forums are different than social media, but anything that sort of ties me to the laptop, uh, I'm not very good at it. So yes, I, I may have crossed paths a little bit, but um, yeah, that's pretty cool. So you found the gig via the job board and or like dynamite jobs or something. Yeah, basically. And I've been, been here since February. What is this? Yeah. February, 2020. So it's been a fun ride and now we've got this podcast going and it's it's fun to again have guests on like you on the show. So Doug, I I want to go and shift gears here into um just how you got into this world of of creating niche websites. I know obviously from now following your work that you you had started you had started building niche sites on the side while you were working in the corporate world. Yep. So I had a very uh, worker bee kind of job. I was doing uh, management consulting. I have an IT background, computer engineering, and never actually used the computer engineering uh, portion, <laughs> but got into management consulting and, you know, really didn't like my job so much, but I really didn't know like other paths that were out there. I think with shows like the TMBA and a lot of others like that, I was introduced to this whole world of working online and making money online. Up to that point, I I had no interest in entrepreneurship. I was just thinking, hey, I can work this consulting job for a a long time and and work my way up the corporate ladder. And then over time, it it wears you down. And then you realize you hate your job. There's a lot of people that work in IT that have uh, great salaries, good benefits. Maybe you're working with good people they still hate their jobs for whatever reason. And it's really easy to fall into that path without making any like hard decisions. And I accidentally found the Smart Passive Income podcast in 2013. I was just kind of flipping through. I'm, I'm super into beer. I don't know if you know that. I'm super into beer and home brewing beer. And I was kind of burned out on all the beer brewing podcasts. So there was like a whole subculture. There's a ton of beer podcasts out there. And I was just burned out. So I was looking for something new, found Smart Passive Income. And then within a month or two, started my first website, which was kind of a flop. I made a lot of mistakes, but I was taking action and doing stuff. By the end of the year, so maybe six months later, I had a website making $6,000 a month. And it was fantastic. Now, all good SEO stories have some part where you got a Google penalty and you were making, you know, $1,000 a day. And then all of a sudden traffic went to zero. You lost all your revenue. So that happened to me, um, like basically right after the highest month, it, everything dropped by like 90%. So it took sort of a long, a long path. And this whole time I had uh, my full-time gig. I worked from home often. So I was able to save time on commutes and other nonsense you run into when you have to go to the office. And basically I was able to work on all this stuff on the side for a few years and I got laid off in 2015. So doing it all on the side for a couple of years. And then in 2015, I had the opportunity to take it full time, like normal, the first year in business, a little bit rocky. You have to figure out your footing, but you know, here we are five years later doing great. Love the kind of work that I'm, that I'm able to do each day. 
I think it's fascinating that you've been able to kind of take that process of creating niche sites and then turn it into a niche for yourself in terms of content as well. Like when did you, when did that idea strike you to say, you know what, maybe I should start teaching people how to, how to do this. So almost at the beginning, it's kind of a, I don't know if there's some survivorship bias situation happening, but you learn or I learned from people that were documenting the process along the way with their own podcast. I mentioned Pat Flynn. I followed Spencer Hawes. I followed the TMBA guys, Dan and Ian, and they were documenting things along the way. Now, not everyone had a course or any kind of product that they were selling directly, but pretty early on within a first couple months, I was like, oh, I would love to you know, start my own blog and document the journey, blah, blah, blah. As soon as I decided I was going to launch the blog, and that was roughly six months after I, I discovered everything, I was becoming successful. And I was like, I have an interesting spin that I could put on this because I'm a PMP, a project management professional, which is a moderately difficult certification to get. It takes a decent amount of time and a lot of IT people have it. A lot of other people have it too, but a lot of IT folks. So I was thinking, hey, I could really carve out an area where I orient all the content around project management. I have expertise and I have a certificate to, to back it all up. So when I put all that together, I thought, well, I'm not going to do it for um, a charity. I'm going to immediately make sure I can monetize this so that it at least you know pays for the hosting and some tools that I want to use. And it turns out, if you can teach someone how to do something, it really enforces your expertise. Like you have to explain things in a simple way. You have to break it down. And if you can teach someone how to do something, you really understand it quite well. So it's like a extra layer on top of like learning. So pretty early on, I was thinking, hey, I'm going to I'm going to try to document this and I'm going to launch a product pretty much as soon as possible. So I actually did that again within the first six to seven months. You mentioned you have this PMP project management professional certification. Um, That's right. I, I'm, I'm curious about just being very systematic as you are, because that's my obviously like my impression of you and the way that you do things. I think that's one of the reasons why your content really like gravitates towards me and towards towards other people is that you have this systematic way of doing things. Have you always been somebody who is very systematic um, and organized? I think so. Pretty, pretty. um Yes, I, I would say I have been, and I'm trying to think back like er, early, like my my young schooling days. So I think, yes, I have been very systematic. And as I progressed, I mean, I was good in math and science. And then as you progress down that route, you get pushed into engineering, which further reinforces systems. And then project management, it's about you know, continuous improvement, don't recreate the wheel, use templates, use systems. And I think we're going to be getting into those specifics, but 
yes, everything has like pushed me farther and farther into using systems. And it turns out it's very useful in, you know, whether you want to have a small team, which I have, or a large team, those systems and templates are going to save a lot of time across the board. Gotcha. So let's shift into your creation of content specifically with YouTube. You started doing more YouTube in 2017, you know, from the research that I did, you, you had hit 3000 subscribers in September of 2017, but you were doing a lot more live streams at the time. And now I notice that you still do live streams, um, but on like a once a week basis, right? It, it, what, what is the value that you see in doing live streams on YouTube? So two two main areas, and, and good job on the research, John. That is exactly right, and it actually refreshed my memory a little bit too. So the live streams early on, those were a good way for me to create videos without stressing out on editing, All right? Editing takes a lot of time. If uh, you're listening, watching this, you probably realize editing could be uh, many times the effort of writing the script or shooting the video or a- any of those details. Editing is a beast. I was particularly um, bad at it. I wasn't proficient at using the tools. I was trying to learn on my own and it was really slowing things down. So I thought, how can I remove barriers? I can go live. There's not too many people going live and people are a lot more patient if they're watching a live, uh, you know, live show, they understand you're going to make some mistakes. So people were a little more patient, and I was able to create, you know, more videos faster by removing that whole layer of editing or having to hire an editor or anything like that. The other part is, and I didn't realize it at the time, was it really helps build community. So I had like the same people showing up. And by the way, for the first several, I mean, there may have been one or two people on there, but I committed to go ahead and produce those videos, go live. And if even if no one was there, I was going to talk and I was going to keep going. I was going to do my 30 minutes or an hour or whatever I committed to at the time. And over time, more people started to show up they would have their own conversations in the chat. And now I see this with my peers and some, you know, kind of newer channels. Some of my friends have where they're trying to do live streams and it's to build community in a lot of ways. And, you know, again, it's a lot of times easier for them to just do a one hour live stream than to try to put together like a, you know, eight minute video. It's just faster. How, how does the preparation for a live stream differ at all from the preparation that goes into making, uh, you know, a taped piece of content? Is it the same? Is it sim, is it similar or are there, are there differences in how you prepare? Initially, I'm trying to think if I, if I shifted a lot. One skill that I had from my day job is I, as a project manager, sorry, as a project manager, I used to lead meetings and I would potentially get a presentation that had information that I only got to look through for five minutes beforehand. So I literally would be on calls with executives that were many pay grades ahead of me. And I would need to go through these slides and make presentations. You know, we didn't have to do video back then. It was 
just getting uh, started. We just had enough bandwidth and the technology to do video calls. But the, the point is I was pretty comfortable just doing a presentation. So that said, a lot of times I was able to really just show up, maybe have a blog post that I've written in the past and kind of hit the high points, hit the bullet points in that article. And that would be my, my live stream. Plus you have the chat so you can answer questions. So if there were a few people, you could answer questions there. If you're shooting, you know, the videos I try and do now, I try to prepare a lot more and I may even write a script that I'll use a teleprompter for so I can be concise. I can say exactly what I want to say without repeating myself. If you don't have a script, it's really easy to repeat yourself. And if you're not a strong editor, it's really easy to leave in the repetitive statements over and over again. So, you know, nowadays it may take me a couple hours to write a script that's, you know, maybe enough for 10 minute, a 10 minute video. And then for a live stream, I literally can show up cold. I could talk about nonsense. Like I've done hundreds of live streams at this point. So I literally can just show up, turn on the camera, hit live. And then I can talk to the people in the chat. I could just riff on some nonsense or, you know, some stories that maybe I have in the back of my head. It's weird, but it's a muscle and skill that you can develop. And if you just do enough of them, I think, uh, you know, most people will get comfortable in just going live without much prep. At what point did you feel comfortable with um, with being on camera, did, with with the live streams, and even just doing some of the the taped recorded content that you were creating? Because I imagine too, it's just kind of weird when you're like you got like a cell phone up or you've got a camera up and you're just talking to it and nobody is in the room. Like that's one thing that I often hear that is is quite takes some time getting used to when when it comes to creating video content. Oh man, it's, it's so hard. Go, I've left all my old videos up by the way. So I think one of the very early ones is literally a live stream on like keyword research and it was rough. I I haven't watched it in a long time, but if anyone wants to laugh, you can go take a look at that. And then I tried to do a few other videos where I was very much not comfortable and I, again, I encourage people to check out those early videos and just see how bad I, it's like I was scared of the camera. I think the sound's a little off and just not good. So I don't remember specifically when I thought, hey, I'm comfortable on camera. Now, there's a couple aspects now with, you know, going live and just doing a live stream, knowing that there's going to be some people in the chat. If I just had to guess, it's probably like 150 to 200 of those, which sort of pulling it out of air, but also I know you got to put the reps in and it takes a little while to be able to go through it, to communicate effectively, to actually, I don't have a producer or anything in the chat. So I have to watch the chat and make sure, you know, people aren't um, hazing or doing any, uh, you know, spamming in there and keep some order and be able to talk and generally communicate. Pretty tough. I should probably get a producer. And there have been a few live streams where I had guests and I knew there were going to be a lot of people. So I did bring on an assistant to just watch the chat and feed me questions just so I didn't have to worry about it at all. 
for the other aspect of doing videos where it's not live and maybe you're carrying your your camera around, you have your um, you know, a GoPro or a gorilla pod in your DSLR or whatever, and you have to, you know, potentially walk around. People will see you. You may feel embarrassed. They may think, hey, what is that crazy person doing talking to themselves to a like with a video? And at some point when I knew I was like, can we cuss on this? Yeah, we can. That's fine. We'll edit it out. I was <laughs> okay. Um, well, I don't have to. So, <laughs> so basically, at some point, I knew. Well, you know what? I have a few thousand subscribers, and I know hundreds of people are going to watch this, and people care what I'm talking about. So that's awesome. That it's completely amazing. So once you get enough momentum, and at least for me, when I knew that a few hundred people were interested in what I had to say, I had no issue like walking around and looking like an idiot because, you know, the people around me have no clue the context of what I'm saying. They have no idea that hundreds or maybe thousands of people are going to watch the video and impact their lives. And I, I have no issue looking like an idiot if I can help other people out. How did your, your channel um, really start to take off? Right. Like at this point now, you're you're at about, I think, like 25,000 or almost 30,000 subscribers, something around that point. Um, but like, were there videos or something that you had created that that gave more traction and then led to more subscribers? I, I, you also have an email list, too, which I'm subscribed to. And I wonder if that was part of helping you grow that audience on on YouTube. I don't think it's ever uh, taken off. It's just been slow grinding it out. There's never been a huge inflection point. If there's a couple tools you can go and, and see sort of the historic data for YouTube channels and uh, other social media. And basically it's just been a very slow linear growth over the course of a few years. There were a few videos that tended to get more views. A lot of those are around keyword research and other ideas that worked really well for me on the on the blog side. So I knew that those were good topics. I'm experts in those areas. So when I did a few of those videos, they started to get some more views. And one thing on YouTube is once you see that you're getting traction in a certain topic area, it's really effective to just lean into it if it's something that you know, you want your channel to, to aim towards, but if you lean into it, then you're going to be able to, um, but really just get more views because of the way the YouTube algorithm works, at least at this point in time in 2020. And that it seems to be moving in that direction where the more a viewer watches on a particular channel, the more recommendations are going to get from that channel, especially in a certain topic area. So I found, like I said, keyword research did really well. So I shot a bunch more keyword research videos. Now, one thing that, that did help at least get me in front of other audiences, which is a you know, super effective way to grow, is collaborations. It's kind of hard when you're getting started to you know, collaborate with a much bigger YouTuber, but I was actually able to do it a few times Sometimes it wasn't so effective as far as like growing the channel, but 
the thing I had was stories to tell. So there are a lot of YouTubers that are good at producing videos. Maybe they're able to get a lot of you know, subscribers, a lot of views, but they may not have the stories to back it up. So maybe they're a great, uh, a great videographer. Maybe they just can analyze data and explain it, but they don't have those firsthand stories. So I was able to come in and say, Hey, I got great stories. Uh, one, two, three, and I'd love to tell people on, on your channel about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm qualified. I've been featured in these other places. So it was kind of easier to really, you know, hit above my weight class there just because I, I did have those stories to tell. Yeah. It's like you have to bring value to, to the person that you're pitching. You know, I spoke to another guest the other day and she's, she did a similar thing in terms of collaboration. She, she was very much focused on, um, on just what can I do for this person to make it worth their while? Like if you're, if you're pitching a collaboration and I imagine too, you know, you're going to get rejected as well. Not everybody is going to say yes. Some, there'll probably be quite a few people who actually say no, despite you bringing something to, to offer. So how do you deal with that when that happens? I guess I just knew that I was going to get rejected a lot. And it, it's funny, I didn't get rejected too often on the on these YouTube pitches. I think I really spent the time to foster the relationship and, you know, watched a few videos, commented, sent some emails. And if it wasn't a good fit, I probably, you know, skipped it. But I, I don't recall being rejected too many times pitching these collaborations. Now I get pitched pretty often for, I mean, people push all sorts. They want to get their product featured. And, you know, most of the time it's not even a good fit. These are the worst kind of pitches. So I, I think it could have just been, you know, me spending the extra time to network, make sure it was a good fit. And then most of the time, these YouTubers remembered what it was like when they had, you know, a thousand subscribers and they, they were uh, given the opportunity to collaborate with a bigger YouTuber. So they're sort of paying it, paying it back and, and really just trying to be nice. Gotcha. So I, I want to talk to you now about just like your system for, for producing content and it's changed throughout the years. I imagine, you know, as well, because as I mentioned before, you were doing a lot more live streams. You still, you still do those these days, but now you have a, a system in which you're, able to produce a video every day. And, and there's an article that we'll link to in the show notes that you wrote for as a guest post on HubSpot. Great backlink opportunity, by the way. Um, just from what I've seen in your content, I get the sense too that you're essentially repurposing a lot of what, you, what you're doing through your podcasts. You're taking clips from from the podcast interesting moments and then turning those into individual videos yep you got it so when there's a couple areas that i could talk about here so first we'll start with just video production and ignoring the interviews so i have probably a couple hundred blog posts over on my blog and 
some honestly, a lot of the topics are not great, but I know a handful of them are pretty good. So I went to that list and I tried to figure out how I can repurpose the content from the blog over to YouTube. And I did probably a pretty terrible job because I I didn't use any B-roll. I literally just shot like talking head videos and they were rambly. They, they went on a little too long. In a lot of cases, I didn't have a script. I just had a couple bullet points and that leads to, you know, long rambling videos. And my channel actually grew really well while I was doing those videos. So in those cases, I basically just had the idea, went through and, and shot it. Now, I love doing interviews, these long form interviews, which I do use for the podcast. And then I'll, I record a video just like this and I'm able to publish that long form interview. And just like you said, I'm able to just like chop it into to clips. So, you know, Joe Rogan and, and a lot of other shows do this. When my video editor gets a hold of, of the, I guess the, the raw files there, basically I'm like, edit it like you would do a normal interview. Give me the audio so I could publish it on the podcast feed. The other part, we'll go ahead and put that on YouTube and then just chop it up. I don't even give her instructions. I, I tell her, if, you know, anywhere from say six minutes to 13 minutes or so. So we have some more manageable chunks. A lot of people on YouTube don't want to watch a full interview. Maybe they don't have enough time at that given moment, or maybe they just don't watch long interviews. So I just have these long form interviews that I could chop up and Occasionally, I'm producing one of these scripted videos where, you know, nowadays I, I pay a little more attention to the conciseness. I try to write out that script and I try to edit it really tight. So I, I really have the shortest video that I could possibly get because I'm producing so much other content. And, and honestly, I make very little from views or sorry, from ad revenue. So I don't really care about the views. I really don't care about the view time. Um, the subscriber count is a vanity metric in, in many ways. And for me, you mentioned it earlier, it's the email list. I want people on the email list. That's my goal. So all, all these things, you know, the blog, the podcast, all the YouTube videos, I just want to get people on the email list so I could communicate with them directly without having the layer of your nonsense on, on YouTube where there's ads showing and all that. Now I do show ads uh, occasionally, but it's, it's on the, the, min, the minority of the videos. There's so much there. I want to unpack with you because there are little bits and pieces. I'm like, Oh, I need to, you know, store this away in my brain and ask Doug about this. Um, I'll go with like the most recent thing that you were just talking about. And that's just the email list. Uh, and again, that's how I, you know, discovered your YouTube channel was because I was subscribed to your email list and, and you obviously publish your, your, um, or notify your email subscribers about when you have a new video up. Um, and it seems like in terms of most, what most YouTubers do or most content creators on YouTube, they really want to get people to subscribe to the channel and turn on notifications. But I think it's really smart with what you're doing in, in terms of trying to convert people into um, into email subscribers because that is that is a communication channel that you can control versus versus YouTube. 
in the whole time that I've been creating content, the email list has been really the most important part of the system. So the blog can get organic traffic from Google. People search for affiliate marketing or something to that effect, and they may end up on my site. And I want to give them enough value that they think, hey, it'll be a really good idea to sign up for the email list. And, you know, just like you said, on YouTube, a lot of people do, it's like hit the like, um, subscribe. And those are good. I mean, I say it pretty often, but I mean, the fact is they know how to, if they watch YouTube videos, they know how to do that. If they want to get more from you, they'll go ahead and do that. You really don't need to tell them. And some of my most um, effective videos where I've been able to actually, you know, I can see the analytics. I know I'm getting more subscribers from certain videos. I don't even mention, I don't mention my name until the very end. I don't tell anyone to take an action to like, like, or subscribe, right? That's the common wisdom. You know, you have to tell them, you know, like, and subscribe to my channel, hit the bell for notifications. They, they hear that constantly. That is probably filtered out. And for my most recent videos, again, where I'm, I'm trying harder to script things, I, they, they don't even care who I am, honestly, right? They, they want to get the piece of information and then uh, move forward. So if I can hook them in, you know, maybe five minutes in, I'll say, oh, I'm Doug, by the way, if you dig these, you know, maybe, maybe subscribe. So I still say it, but I bury it deep into the video. And I've noticed, I've noticed, like I said, if I'm not asking for anything up front and I'm putting the value out first, then it's more likely to, you know, actually drive that, you know, subscriber or the viewer to subscribe. As far as getting someone to sign up for the email list, I have tons of theories on that, but I'll pause here because I, I know I keep saying a, a very dense amount of uh, content in every answer here. Yeah, no, it's I, I, I think it was in the HubSpot article that you had mentioned that you're able to convert your your YouTube viewers four times more than like any other channel, which is pretty incredible, like in terms of that shows you the power of a video compared to maybe writing or or even audio. So that that's pretty interesting. But another thing that I, you know, wanted to dial back into that you had mentioned a moment ago was just coming up with um YouTube video content ideas based on blog posts. Now are you going into like your Google Analytics and seeing on your blog, hey, these particular topics perform the best. They got the, the like the the read time or the dwell time was longest. They got the most page views. And then you're thinking, okay, maybe I should create a piece of content around that on YouTube, or are you doing something else? Usually it was a thoughtful analysis on the content and the topic. And I wanted to get certain viewers who are interested in the topic of things that I was selling. So I sell courses. So I wanted to make sure I was publishing content that would pull in the people that would potentially buy a course. And it's important to mention that because I have content on my site, which is irrelevant for those kind of people. It may be, um, you know, something that I wrote that I was interested in a few years ago. It may actually get a decent amount of traffic. It may 
rank well, but it doesn't align with the, the funnel to actually make sales. So really, I would just make sure that I'm, I'm publishing the content to pull in the right kind of audience member who may want to work with me in the future. That That's the biggest thing. And coupled with that, some of the topics that I cover have very good um, tools that I can offer up for free, like a spreadsheet. So this is where the email list building really comes into play. So some of the videos that did well uh, that I'm referencing in that HubSpot article, they were around keyword research and I shared my template. The, the keyword research template is just a Google sheet. So it was super effective in getting people to actually subscribe to my email list. A lot of people will call this a content upgrade. It's sort of a specialized kind of lead magnet and it's a the free resource that is 100% related to the topic that you're covering and it makes it you know easier to do or faster and it's a useful tool. So it's like a no-brainer if someone's interested in that video, interested in those keyword research topics, they will want that spreadsheet. So just sign up for the email list and you get free access to the spreadsheet. And what about to, as you talked about earlier with um, picking the pieces of content from the podcast to, to repurpose, are you, are, is that something that you do yourself after doing the interview or are you taking notes and saying, oh, that was super interesting. Let's turn that into like an individual video or do you let your, your editor kind of sift through the content and then make those decisions um, their, themselves? So I let my editor just make the decision. And as I, <laughs> you pointed out earlier, you know, systems and organized and templates, like, have you always been like that? Yeah, pretty rigid for a while. And then as I realized that it was kind of on the edge of, you know, trying to, be a perfectionist, I realized, hey, that really slows you down when you're trying to put out content. And basically I realized, hey, I could let go of some of this control and it probably really doesn't matter that much at all. So that was one of the items where I thought, I think my editor will do a pretty good job just arbitrarily choosing some division points. I'll give her some loose instructions and I don't even care where she divides them. It's totally fine with me. And she's is she looking for opportunities with with um, SEO on YouTube for those particular pieces of content that she isolates, or is it just interesting? It just has to be an interesting piece of content. Just an interesting piece of content, and and technically, we use all of the the video. I'm pretty sure almost all of the video, probably ninety percent of it, and it's just divided up into smaller chunks. She'll tell me the sort of broad topic that was covered. And then my other assistant will do kind of the admin stuff on the YouTube side. So she titles it and I, you know, she didn't do perfect um, off the bat, but I told her to throw in a few more keyword rich ideas, but we're largely not doing keyword research, especially for those clips. Sometimes, you know, we luck out, but I mean, really a lot of this is super sloppy just because I, I realized making it more accurate, making it more perfect probably wouldn't help that much. Now with the keyword research stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm into that. I'm, I'm 
knowledgeable in that area. And I know I'm probably not doing as good of a job, but the fact is with interviews, they are going to be sloppy conversations. So if I see that a video is doing pretty good because we accidentally had a great keyword for the title, I know I can go back and record a better video, maybe pull a clip from that interview and produce it more. The cool thing with interviews is the production and editing could be a little bit lower and people are a lot more forgiving because they know people don't talk perfectly in a conversation. There's a lot of false starts and poor grammar along the way. So it's understandable. So I, I want to know too about the value of posting daily versus, you know, other YouTubers, creators, they may post once, twice, three times a week. They'll do like a big video, one big video, couple big videos. But with you, you're again, you're posting constantly on a, on a daily basis how does how do you think that or what kind of value does that have versus that other kind of way where it's a little bit more intermittent? I think, well, I am not dogmatic in, in either direct. I mean, I, I'm able to publish so often because I'm doing these long interviews and it fits perfectly in the system. It's literally like no more work for me and just not very expensive for me to publish those videos. I do know if I was putting time into each one of those daily videos that everything else would be a little bit worse. And I don't I don't think I'd be able to produce really good well-scripted videos on a daily basis if um yeah, if I if I was doing it daily, it would be much worse. So the videos that I do put the time into I know they're much better if I'm able to focus and spend the time that you know they deserve on it. So for example, pretty soon I'm going to publish a playlist. There's going to be probably six videos or so. They're all interrelated and I'm scripting them all out ahead of time. I'm a, I'm going to publish all the videos at once and you know throw them into a playlist and i hope people will binge watch it i've done this a couple times i think it's fairly effective and a lot of the common knowledge that you hear because i i heard people say oh i want to publish one video per week or one video per month so that i can let the algorithm you know work i i want to make sure i let it breathe and it has an opportunity have you heard that too john yeah i've heard that a little bit it's it sounds more it it does sounds like something very similar to to what you would do with blog content, right? Like you kind of have to let the content sit on your website for a while for the Google algorithm to pick up and obviously Google owns YouTube, so there's there might be some some overlap there. So I I believe it on the on the blog side by the way. For the SEO blog side, it does have to sit and age a little bit usually. For the YouTube algorithm, this is only anecdotal, my own experience and end of one here, but I wasn't sure if I needed to let the videos breathe and not publish so often. So I've gone through periods where I stopped publishing so often and I would just publish one article per or one video per week to see what would happen. And I didn't notice a huge difference. And then in the midst of publishing daily again, I saw one video took off like crazy. It ended up getting, I don't know, like 
10 times more views and you know 20 times more subscribers for whatever reason the algorithm really liked it there was some interesting interaction with the viewers there weren't a huge number of comments or likes or anything like that i mean it was kind of fit in the range but there was something about the video that was really making it take off and like i said during that that period, I was publishing daily on both sides of it. It didn't have any room to breathe. So I I think there's some other mechanism. So as far as the value, I know some people uh, that are subscribed to the channel and that are fans, they watch every one of the videos. So even if I'm only getting a few views, I know some people are into it. And again, like I said, it's not too much extra work for me. It just costs a little bit more money and that's uh, that's okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating to me because, you know, like you may have some videos like looking at your channel, some of your videos may only get like 100 views. But if you're posting every single day, like those add up <laughs> versus somebody, maybe they might post once a week and they'll get a video that that hits and gets like 3000 views, which is nice. But then you're accumulating that like over the course of a week with just like a handful of these videos that don't, you know, don't require that much production value to, to create. I watched a lot of like Gary V for a little while and he just, you know, wants to hit people over the head with all sorts of different content. So I got a little bored watching uh, Gary after a while. Cause I got kind of got the point and he yells at you a lot. He, he's it's like, he's mad at you for no reason. I don't know why he's mad at me. I'm like, hey, I'm just trying to get by here. I don't want to stay up. You know, he's like, hey, stay up all night and answer Twitter and stuff. I'm like, I'm not going to do that, you know? But yeah, the videos, I was like, I'm I'm just going to publish these and see what happens. And the it's hard to get really good um, comparison data because I'm not sure like algorithmically how things are impacted by publishing so often. But at the end of the day, I stopped publishing those daily videos and all those clips for a while and just kind of throttled back for about two months and then turned it back on. And it was pretty clear once you zoom out far enough that, you know, views and watch time went down. And I I know I'm contradicting myself. I said, I don't really care too much about the metrics, but I mean, if I'm working on something, I have to look at some kind of metrics to know how things are going. So those are the two sort of metrics that I'm paying attention to. And again, it was very clear once you zoomed out that people are watching, there's, there's more watch time, people are interacting and overall that's, it's good if people are watching the videos. So I'm also curious, Doug, about just planning um, the interviews, the podcasts that you do, the the video podcasts that you do. Um, obviously, we're we're doing a podcast right now, and I have my way of doing things. But I'm super curious because maybe I'll steal some of your ideas and like apply it to how I produce this show. Um, are you are you trying to record as many of those interviews in batch in in a single day, or if you can, depending on on the interviewee schedule or does it just kind of go as it comes in terms of the availability of, of the interview subject? I usually don't batch, uh, too many. I think I do interviews on 
Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, but I don't really try and force any particular day. Sometimes it wears me out a little bit to have to do so many interviews, but I've done, you know, four or five interviews and then been interviewed myself all in the same day. And it it's fine. You just have to be prepared and not do anything else that day. I couldn't try to write a blog post or script a video on that same day. As long as I have the open space, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape there. And what was the other part of the question? How do I prepare? Yeah, just how do you prepare for the for those interviews? A lot of the interviews I do are success stories. So I kind of have a list of about 10 questions or so that I, you know, I researched ahead of time years ago, and I can generally use those sort of same questions. And what happens is someone will say something interesting, and then we can go down a, th- a thread. So those 10 questions or so may turn into, you know, 40 as we have a conversation and go deeper and deeper. I'm pretty knowledgeable in the areas that I'm interviewing people on. So I can pick a tiny little thread and and make it really advanced and and go as deep as they're able to, or as, as much as I can keep up knowing that the audience is interested in really dense information and really, um, you know, deep in the weeds topics. So other interviews where maybe it's not a success story, maybe it's a founder of a software tool, I'll, I'll have to do more research. So it, it may be a little more similar to you know maybe what you're doing where you'll check out their website, you'll watch some videos, you'll maybe see what else you can find out there so that you know good questions to ask. So I at times I've done, you know, a couple, three hours of preparation. If I know it's a big interview and I need to do, I should always do a good job. But if I know that I don't have enough knowledge going in cold, there are other interviews where, you know, again, those success stories, I literally can have a couple of bullet points that the person told me. And then I can just go through the questions and people seem to like them. So I've, I've gotten better over time. I'm just curious. I want your tips. What, what do you do to prepare? Well, this is, I mean, I had, um, I had hosted a podcast a while ago. I, before I, you know, worked here, um, at video Husky and I had worked, um, in the NBA as a, as a blogger journalist for, for a few years at the beginning of my career. And I hosted, co-hosted this podcast, um, an NBA podcast and, I don't think my preparation was very good back then compared to now. Although maybe I'm being a little bit hard on myself because my preparation, I guess, was just the day-to-day coverage of the team that I was I was reporting on. So the fact that I was going to practices and talking to players and coaches, that would give me like the knowledge set to know what it was that I wanted to talk about in a podcast um, episode. If we had guests... I would normally try to aim like you. I try to write down 10 specific questions and, and then know that, okay, I might not get to write all of the, or ask all of these questions when, when the interview happens, but at least I have them in my back pocket. Um, for this, it's been interesting. I, I'm kind of been, I've kind of been experimenting a little bit just based on who, who the guest is and I I'm 
always kind of worried, oh, maybe I'm like, you know, doing too much overkill here in terms of preparation because I want to try to make these as like conversational as possible. And also at the same time, I don't want to have, um, you know, so many notes in front of me that I'm like getting super overwhelmed looking at that side of my screen um, and then not listening to the person who I'm, I'm interviewing. I, I found that that's one thing that I'm doing now quite a bit, especially in this conversation, which I think is super meta for us to be talking about is, you know, I'll really try to listen um, to what the interviewee is saying and then kind of, you know, put it in my back pocket, uh, little nuggets that are super interesting that I want to follow up on um, and then go from there. It's tough. It's really tough because you don't want to leave too big of a, a pause or some kind of awkward, just long period where you're not saying anything. So you're always trying to think like, oh, what I need, what do I need to ask next? But also y- you maybe should ask a deeper question about the thing they just said, which you're doing a great job on. And it, it reminded me of a couple interviews that I've done in person, live. And I, I also, a little bit, I'm, I'm talking about financial independence. I live in Longmont, Colorado, and there's some of the um, prominent Fi and retire early kind of folks that live around here. And yeah, I Mr. work at the co working space. Is out, is out there, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. So that's the co working space that I work at. His oh, name's cool. Pete. He's just a normal dude. But I haven't interviewed him, but I'm potentially working on that sometime soon. But I've interviewed the other owners there, Carl and Mindy Jensen, and they're very well known. Mindy Jensen has a huge podcast that she works on with Bigger Pockets. Carl Jensen is another one of the fixtures in the FI community, spoke at a few of the conferences, and I was able to interview both of them. And one thing that I tried to do was, you know, do all the research and and have like talking points. But I also wanted to have sort of like a story arc, which I don't know if I was successful at it, but I tried to, you know, learn about them, take us through sort of a journey where people got to know. I mean, both of them commented like, hey, that was a really good interview. I think, I mean, interviewing is tough. I've done a lot of them at this point, but I also prepared for many hours for those because I knew that they were, you know, prominent people and I wanted to make sure I did a good job. So that that was one just additional thing where I, I tried to make sure there was kind of a story arc where one little point that I knew that they were going to answer a certain question with would lead us into the next question. So you don't always have the opportunity to do that, but like I, I thought about it hard enough where I think I pulled it off a couple times. Yeah, that's something I used to do quite a bit in it when I was a journalist, when I would go into practices and if I, I would have a story idea in mind that I wanted to write about, I'd have my angle and I would just start asking questions related to that and kind of take try and take whoever that I was interviewing down that path to see if they would give me anything, anything good. And I kind of do that here too. I mean, depending on who, who the subject is, like, for example, with you, you know, you're, you're this expert in terms of affiliate marketing and building niche websites and whatnot. Um, and then also project management and being very systematic. So that's kind of how I 
how I wanted to approach and attack this interview in particular and focus on those things. Um, but then maybe with another um, creator who I talk to, maybe they're a traveler and I'll talk more about their travels and, and how they've, um, you know, created content related to that. Um, so it's all like different. There's so many different ways to do it. And I, I feel like it's just going to be a process of like continually trying to get better. I'm also trying to just study some of the great, you know, inter interviewers out there. I mean, I, I had the fortune, I don't know if you've, um, you've heard of him or listened to his podcast, but a couple of years ago, I had a chance to work with a um, great podcaster now, but he used to write for Esquire magazine for a really long time. His name is Cal Fussman. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, I had heard him on like Tim Ferriss's podcast a couple of years ago, and I just reached out to him cold and then kind of built a relationship with him and his manager. So I got to work with him on some of his content related things a little bit just for a very short period of time. But um, just getting to, you know, observe how he goes and approaches interviews. He he, he talks about um you know, this idea of letting the silence sometimes do the work because sometimes you can kind of let it breathe, let the interview breathe for a little bit. And even for just like one, two, three seconds, and then somebody will just kind of, the person that you're interviewing will find a way to to fill that silence or, or add to it without you having having um, asked a follow-up question. Or even now, like I'm, uh, you know, studying what Joe Rogan does and how he conversates with people um you know others as well mark Marin is a great podcaster who 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 does a really good job in terms of interviewing so and it's fascinating to me to like even i'm i find myself listening differently when i'm listening to podcasts and trying to hone in on what it is that the host is doing in particular versus just kind of listening to the show holistically yeah, it, I do exactly the same thing where I, I find, I'm like, why did they ask that? And, oh, that was cool how they followed up in that way. I got to remember to do that sometime. Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting, but I, I, I enjoy it. I like this. Again, as I mentioned to you in the beginning, I'm like, this is, a, this is kind of just a way for me also to kind of talk to people who, you know, I look up to or are interested in learning something from. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of, of hosting a podcast is that you just, it's almost like a free consulting session to be quite honest. So, and we can share that information with, with the audience as well, you know, because we're, we're obviously, you know, reaching people who are creating content on YouTube, creating video content. So at like you with your, with your website, people just want to learn from other people, how, how they've done things. And so this is, that's just the approach that I'm taking here with, with this show as well. So, um, in terms of, by the way, on, in terms of time, how are we doing? Do you need to, do you need to run soon or are you good to go for a little bit? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about creating blog content versus creating video content. What are the main differences between both? What are some of the similarities that you're finding that that overlap and allow you to to create both types of content? 
haven't been doing as much blogging since I've been putting so much time in into YouTube. And I partially miss it. And then in, in other ways, sometimes I'm overwhelmed with, you know, trying to write a blog post. And in my head, just earlier today, I was like, oh, I think it takes me longer to write a blog post, but I'm not really sure because as I mentioned before, if I'm scripting out a video, I mean, that's basically like writing a blog post. You structure things a little differently, but in a lot of ways they are similar. So the big similarities that that I'm seeing are use as few words as possible. And that, I mean, you have the journalism background, you, you know this already, like editing well is such a great skill to have. And it's really easy to write a really long blog post or to make a really long video because you could be super sloppy. And if you edit it down and give just the right amount of information that the person needs for that topic, it's going to be better. You're going to, you're just going to do a better job communicating and the audience, whether it's a reader or a viewer, they're going to get more out of it too, and probably going to save time. So that's the biggest similarity and it crosses over, you know, very easily. If I write something, I know, man, I need to edit edit this down, like no matter what, I need to try to say this in fewer words. Same deal with the videos. So I know if I just, if I can cut out 10%, if I can, you know, shave it down, it's probably going to be better. Even if I think, well, it's really important for me to have that in. If it's not essential, I should probably take it out. If it's not, if it's not going to impact the overall uh, content, then I should probably take it out. So I'm trying to think if there's any other major differences. I think one of the issues, and this is a personal thing that I'm struggling with, if I publish a blog post, it may take a little while for Google to rank it. Maybe it's not going to rank and maybe people are not really going to pay much attention to it. On YouTube, the same thing might happen, but YouTube tells you these metrics and all these analytics, like as soon as you publish something and you have so much data, I feel like you have a little bit more insight into some of the data from YouTube versus, you know, just regular blog content. And it could just be what I'm focusing on and the fact that you can get um, a little more interaction via comments and just know that people are watching and they're notified right away when you publish a new video. So I, I may need to go back and, and look more at the blog. Obviously, a lot of people still read blogs, do Google searches, and it's a great way to pull in traffic. Now, the biggest, you didn't ask this part, but the biggest thing that I'm, I'm sort of looking at is to make sure if I'm writing a blog post or if I'm publishing a video, that I go ahead and do the corresponding piece of content for that internal linking or I'm going to link back and forth. It's not really an internal link, but from the blog post, I'm going to go ahead and embed the video and I'm going to link to the blog post from the video to get that uh, good synergy to use a nonsense word, but to maybe improve the rankings for both of them and maybe just cross pollinate and get a positive benefit from doing that. What about, I'm kind of jumping back a little bit backwards in the conversation here, but just with planning out your YouTube content, um, 
how far in advance are you are you doing that? Um, like, do you try to have like a huge backlog or something um, before before like the the month that you actually want to publish content? Um, how are you How are you going about planning all of that out? It's usually pretty sloppy, like I mentioned before. I do have the good systems set up, but if I am about to take a trip or we're coming up towards the end of the year right now, it's November or something or other. And last couple of years, I pretty much take December off. I'm probably going to take a little bit more of November off as well. So I, I will do a lot more work ahead of time right now. I think like right now when we're talking, I think I have like three three interviews ready to go. I typically publish those on Mondays. And then each one of those videos will have several clips associated with it, anywhere from, you know, four to eight usually. And, you know, if you do the math, I'm in pretty good shape almost for the rest of the year. And I said I was going to publish, you know, a playlist with six videos. I'll probably put those on on one particular Monday. So I'll plan out pretty far. And the, the biggest thing, I'll plan out pretty far when I'm taking time off. And I do try to take, um, you know, month long, not necessarily vacations, but, but time away. And the last couple of years I've been able to usually take about three, three months off each year. Um, which is crazy now that I say it out loud, you know, versus a, a day job where you, some people get three weeks. I had, you know, pretty good benefits. So I would get four or five weeks most years. And, you know, now I'm like, I could take like three months off. I just schedule everything ahead and I could largely check out, pay attention to email if I want to, but it turns out everything's usually fine if I don't really do much with email either. So. It sounds like an Australian vacation, Doug. <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah. Australians. I've met so many in my travels throughout the world. They're always like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on vacation for like two or three months because it's so far away for them to travel to to other parts of the world." But that's that's really awesome, man. Like to have control of your control of your time, really. It- it is, yeah, it's so amazing. And, you know, that's the best case scenario when I actually do plan ahead at the times where I'm not taking time off. So once I get back from the vacation or whatever reason I'm taking time off, I can often get lazy and then I may be doing a video or a podcast the week that it needs to be published. So, you know, sometimes I am running at the last minute, but it's usually when I have the flexibility to procrastinate and just run behind. So when I force myself, I I realize this, like I do better when I just schedule the time off and then I can work really hard leading up to it. And then I can plan really far ahead. And it it usually works out better that way versus when I can just leisurely do whatever, then I'll leisurely just be a little behind. And, you know, my, my VA, my assistant will say, Hey, we, we need a video for next week. Is that coming? So I'm like, Oh, I need to, you know, I need to work on that. So she has to kind of be my boss. So what's, what's it like getting restarted after, after you take that long of a break? Does it take a little bit of time to kind of get the gears turning again? It's kind of like 
I guess when I came back from vacation uh, with the old day job, so, you know, the first day, kind of ease into emails, kind of see what I missed while I was gone, if there's anything urgent to take care of. And then after that, you know, the next day I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to get to work. Now, as I've gotten better and I've done more of these, you know, month long ish vacations, I plan far enough ahead and then also we'll have my VA sort of prepare things so I could kind of roll in knowing, okay, actually, not only did we cover the time while I was gone, we're good for another 10 days. So I literally can ease back into it and kind of figure out like what I want to work on. The other thing is I often don't plan out more than about, I don't know, six weeks or maybe, maybe eight weeks. I'm not planning out super far so that I can work on, you know, whatever thing is most interesting me, interesting to me at that point. Now, maybe I have a a course launch and I know for that month leading up, I'm going to do a ton of work on that. I'm going to need to basically, you know, launch the product and then support it after that. So there's some pieces where I do have to plan further ahead, but a lot of times I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to be publishing on the podcast or YouTube or blog wise after, you know, the, the first part of the year, basically. Can you tell me about your team as well? Like you have, you've touched on this a little bit, but you know, you, you mentioned there you have a virtual assistant, but you have, you have an editor um, and then the VA also serves as kind of like your, your channel manager, correct? Who, make sure all of the videos get up onto your YouTube channel. I'm just really curious about the process of of building that team out, what you look for in in those people to hire them and um and anything else you can share. I have two assistants right now. So one, yep, the video editor and I hired her from Upwork. I think I tested maybe three other video editors. I sent each of them an assignment. I don't know. I don't think I sent them the same assignment. I just said, here's uh, the raw video. I kind of want to edit it in this style, you know, send it back. They were paid trials and this person was great. I hired her a couple years ago and she's out of Ukraine. So the geo arbitrage of like her hourly rate is great for me. I think she's probably getting paid well for, um, you know, her area. I think she has a, either a film degree or she's working on like a, uh, some sort of cinematography masters or something. So well-qualified, very, very good with the tools. And we've been working together for a while. Then my virtual assistant. She is out of Tennessee and I hired her from Upwork as well. Really an executive assistant. So she helps me with email and the admin stuff on YouTube and other, you know, various details. I have to cough. Sorry. Sure. And for my executive assistant, I was looking for, you know, someone with a solid sort of corporate background who kind of wanted to get out of that. She has an English degree and I'm, 
you know, in need of someone who is good in the, the verbal and, and grammar areas. So I even have her help me out on some of my niche sites and just some of the writing, editing, and some of those other details. She didn't have any experience with YouTube or social media, WordPress, anything like that. All those were super easy to train her on though. One of the, one of the things with my old day job is I was onboarding people all the time. So I would like write the job aids and documentation and make sure people understood how to do things when they rolled onto a team. So, you know, all those details that I mentioned, pretty trivial. You can basically watch a YouTube video and figure out how to do almost any of those things. So I'm trying to think if there's any big details around, you know, other qualifications that I looked for. I don't think so. Pretty, pretty straightforward. I just, I needed someone that I could trust who was going to be, you know, committed to work with me for a while. Yeah. This is something that, um, I'm not sure most people who are creating content on YouTube think to do until maybe they reach a certain inflection point with their channel. Um, it's, uh, it's really fascinating to me because I feel like most of when you look at the most successful channels, you know, there is a team behind it. Yeah. You might have like a person who is the face of, of the channel, but in order to really produce the kind of content that you want to create, it's not possible to just kind of do everything, everything on your own. Like, is that something that, you know, when people, if people have ever come to you, um, asking you for advice to, to get started on YouTube, is that something that you, you let them know like, Hey, you know, yes, I'm here. I'm the face of this, but at the same time, there's, there's people, there's other people behind this who are helping me, you know, bring this content to life. You know, uh, not that many people come to me (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) but I, I definitely talk about, Hey, I have an assistant and viewers of the channel noticed when I got the editor they realized, hey, these cuts are a little bit better. It's a little bit cleaner. I mean, before I wasn't even really edit, I wasn't cutting very much. So there were a lot longer pauses or a lot more, you know, misspoken words and that sort of thing. So, you know, once I brought someone on, they, they knew for sure, hey, you're getting better with editing. And then I could say, well, I hired an editor. So I got, I got out of that, uh, you know, area. Because I just, I mean, I wasn't that good at it and I didn't have the time to invest and I didn't have the interest in investing that time. A couple of the videos uh, more recently that I've edited, you know, it's kind of fun, but it just takes forever and there's not a huge amount of, I mean, it's kind of fun, but it's not, it's not something that like really fulfills me. So it is absolutely fine for me to outsource that and just get rid of it. And I would say, you know, people that, people that are thinking of getting started on YouTube and if they have the budget to pay an editor, it's probably going to be a better product. You're probably going to do a better job on everything else that you're good at. So definitely, you know, outsource the stuff that you don't need to be doing. It could be really difficult depending on how someone, what kind of business they're running. So if someone is just running a YouTube channel and I have some friends that are sort of in this position where 
they have a YouTube channel. They have a solid number of viewers. They have no good way to monetize it. They're like showing ads on their channel, which in my opinion is a pretty terrible way to monetize a channel. I, again, I don't make much money from ads. I just show a few here and there, but I'm selling something else. You know, I'm, I'm earning money a different way. So if you are thinking, Hey, I'm going to, you know, build a channel or start a channel. I'm going to build up this audience and earn money from ads. You're going to have to build a really big audience to even be able to pay for a video editor. I, I don't, I barely pay for my video editor with the amount that I earn from ads, but I'm getting people to sign up for the email list where I can uh, sell affiliate products to them. I can sell them my own products where, you know, it all makes sense. So I think it's really important to, you know, for someone to understand like how expensive it could be to hire an editor and knowing how much it would actually cost to, um, to pay it and then how much you'll earn from whatever they think they're going to earn money from. So, yeah, Doug, as we kind of wind down here on, on the show, I, I want to ask you a couple more questions about firstly, just in terms of like your challenges with, um, with creating video content, are there any in particular right now that, you know, um, you're, you're looking to address, you just haven't had the time to, to fix them yet. Um, any anything in particular come to mind? And, and you're saying just uh, just in general producing videos or yeah, with producing videos or, or getting or maybe maybe you've solved most of the problems with video and that's fine. No, I definitely I definitely haven't solved them. I know there's a couple areas where I I want to script you know, more videos and, and shoot them and really try to up the production value. So I mentioned early in the interview, I didn't use any B-roll early on. So it's just a talking head, pretty boring, not a great way to get the viewer retention. And I rambled on. So as I am trying to produce better videos, I'm trying to look at keyword research. I'm trying to look at other content, other videos that have done well for me that I know are good topics and also making sure it's concise using B-roll. And I've done, I think only two to three videos using those ideas, trying to make sure that I'm improving in those areas. And I could tell right away the viewer retention is higher, the number of views are higher. And as I'm doing more of those, I, I see, hey, that takes a little bit more time on the front end, pre-production, but it's really paying off. So I think, you know, part of this is I've been lazy in that I'm producing content that I want to produce, which are interviews. Those are easy. They're fun to do. And then I could chop them up into a bunch of other content. So I got burned out, I guess. I've, I've been burned out a couple of times. You'll hear YouTubers talk about this because YouTube will chew you up. It wants more videos and more content. And the more videos and content you produce, the the better the feedback you get. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle, very vicious cycle. And at some point I was like, you know what? Things are mostly going fine. So I'm just going to do the videos that I want to do. And then when I'm ready, I'm going to come back and I'm going to, really try a little bit harder 
to produce videos. It'll get more views, pull in more subscribers. So I'm kind of, I'm starting to move in that direction. But as I'm saying it, I'm like, ah, you know what? Things are still going pretty good. So I may be able to coast a little bit longer. It's really a lot of, I don't know if it's laziness, but it's definitely not, it's not push. This is turning into a therapy session in some ways, John, but <laughs> the, yeah, I, I do find myself like, okay, a little complacent. And I know, Hey, with these, uh, this new playlist, this new video set of videos that I'm going to put out, I think all of those are going to be oriented towards like doing a better job in all those areas. And I think I should be able to see the positive impact by putting in the extra work on those. Yeah, it it differs from people to people, person to person, right? Like what their challenges are. I know from talking to an, another creator recently, we ended up having like this l- kind of like long uh, back and forth in the middle of the podcast about just creativity in general and just feeling at times this. I don't know if you've read the book the The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Um, just these, the feeling of resistance, you know, and I'm sure even in, in your expertise area, right, of creating um, affiliate marketing websites, people go through that all the time, even though when they know, like, I've got the whole strategy laid out, I know what I'm going to be writing about. And then you just face these, you, you just hit like a wall or something where you're like, I don't know if I could do this, you know, but it just, again, it kind of just differs from person to person. And the, the cool part is as I've progressed through this digital marketing, online marketing career, I started with a blog and then I added a little more YouTube and then I added a podcast and it's similar ideas, similar skill sets, but everything's a little different. So it's, it's fun to learn the new things and implement. And I think as I maybe got a little bored in certain areas, like you said, you know, people hit that resistance, you know, for me, a lot of times, at least I'm labeling it as, uh, you know what, that's actually a little bit boring. I'm not excited to do that because I've done, done it so many times and I've hit it a few times with a live stream. So there was one stretch where I did two live streams per week. This was a few years ago. And it got really boring. I mean, I would have people show up, but the unfortunate part when you're answering live questions is it could be the first time that someone's watching and they may ask very beginner questions that you literally just answered right before they hopped on live. Pretty boring to answer them again. And I mean, it's boring for me, it's boring for the audience too. So when I realized I was hitting those, again, parts that were boring, I thought, hey, I need to mix it up. Why don't I bring on some guests for the live streams, which now there's you know better software, better technology where you can reliably bring on a guest to a live stream and it's probably going to work most of the time. Not always, but probably going to work. Or just covering a topic where, hey, we're not doing any questions today. I'm going to talk about something that I want to talk about. So I mean, it has to be interesting for the audience, of course, but yeah, there's definitely been periods where I realized, Hey, I got to mix something up here because it's not working for me right now. And it's not sustainable if I stick with it like this. Well, cool, Doug, this was awesome to, to chat with you and, and kind of have a meeting of the minds here about some of this stuff. I mean, there's a lot that I learned and I, I imagine everyone listening and tuning in, they learned quite a bit too. Um, is there anything that, uh, 
that I didn't ask you that maybe you would like to to talk about before we go? I think you covered it pretty well. Yeah, we went we went all over the place and you know, I got some stuff off my chest, you know, like I said it's like a therapy session almost. So, thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Doug, man. I appreciate it as well. Remember, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review wherever you are tuned in to this podcast. We really enjoy hearing from you. And finally, if you want to stay up to date on everything that we're working on here, make sure you are subscribed to our email list. It's the best way to get frequent updates on when a new episode of the Video Craft Show is out, as well as the other content that we're creating on YouTube. So until then, we'll be seeing you. Thanks for tuning in.